Good morning, Steve Dale's Pet World on WGN. I'm smiling. You know I am smiling. We're going to be talking about kittens. I dare you to even say the word kitten and not smile. It's hard to do. Oh, by the way, this is the most exciting news ever presented on WGN Radio, I believe. Groucho, that's our kitten, has his own TikTok page. So if you're on TikTok, please wander over to Groucho underscore the funny cat and check out all of his crazy antics. Just go to TikTok, Groucho underscore the funny cat. You know, us on the radio, we hear about these lists, right? Well, this is a list I'm sure, I'm certain all of you are waiting for, the rattiest cities in America. I'm not going to name them all. You can go to my blog, and that's stevedale.tv if you want to see them all. But I'm starting at number five. That's San Francisco. Four is Washington, D.C. Three is L.A. Two is New York. And at number one, Chicago, my kind of ratty city, apparently. And if you live in the city, this probably doesn't surprise you. I'm talking to Dr. Natalie Marks. Dr. Marks, why am I talking to you about the rattiest city? I don't know, Steve. I don't know how to take that <laughs> outside of I do live in Chicago. I've practiced in Chicago now for a long, long time as a veterinarian. Um, I raise my kids here. I have a dog here. And I also educate quite a bit on a disease I think you're hinting at, if I'm not mistaken. And that would be leptospirosis. And the reason you mentioned two things, kids and dogs. And both of those factors matter when it comes to rats and the word you just said, leptospirosis. So I think first describe what leptospirosis is. Leptospirosis is a disease, it's a bacterium, uh, that is spread through the urine of rodents. And it's not just rats. We also see that, I like to call it our urban wildlife. So our squirrels and skunks and possums and raccoons. We also can see it in farm animals uh, like cows and pigs. But predominantly in in these large cities that you mentioned, it's from the rat population. So they urinate this bacteria out into standing water sources. So puddles and alleys and pour draining water in your backyards and parks and lakes and things like that. And then our dogs can get this disease two ways. They can either drink that water directly or they can step in it. And a lot of dogs with allergies, this is the way they get it. They step in it and then they're constantly licking their feet and they lick that right off their paws and we start to get an infection. And why is this a problem for our dogs, first of all, what can happen as a result of them getting what we're calling, and it is called, leptospirosis? I'm so glad you bring this up, Steve, because we used to think that this disease just affected kidneys and livers in dogs, meaning they would go into kidney failure and they can get pretty bad liver disease. That's bad enough. That's bad enough, yes, because many of these dogs we don't see until they're in advanced stages, and this absolutely can be a fatal disease for your dog. However, now that we know more about this disease, it's not just those two organs. We're seeing a lot of disease in the eye, in the nervous system, in all parts of the body, because this disease can spread pretty rapidly throughout the bloodstream to almost every part of the body. So we can see a lot of different, what we call presentations, meaning a lot of different ways that our dogs act sick. And unfortunately, many of them can lead to life-threatening scenarios. Yeah, and that's obviously not so good, but here's the good news. Prevention is possible. 
Oh, absolutely. And the core of prevention is talking to your veterinarian about vaccination strategies, because we do have very safe and effective vaccines available. It's important to obviously talk about your individual dog and your daily routine and your environmental risks and where you live and um, also any concurrent diseases that are going on so that we can really make an individualized vaccine recommendation for your pet. But that is the core, along with making sure that we're avoiding some of the other risk factors for this disease, like not feeding raccoons in your backyard and making sure that you're avoiding some of these really heavily contaminated areas, um, like going to parks and, and having your dog urinate off to a, a cleaner area of the city. Well, and what you just said is true, obviously, but I want to talk about that in two ways. First of all, if you live in the city, you can't, yes, you should take the precautions you can, but you can't help walking down the street and your dog steps in a puddle. That's right. And you have no way to know that a rat the night before happened to piddle in that puddle. Or you take your dog to Dog Beach and your dog is swimming in Lake Michigan. Who would think that that could be a problem? But it could be a problem. But the other thing is a dog that is unvaccinated, I want you to talk about this, can spread the disease as well. That pet parent has no way to know that's happening. That's right. And you bring up two really important points. So first is avoidance of this disease is nearly impossible. We can't see this bacterium. We have, of course, wet areas of the city and poor draining areas all over. And let's face it, as much as we want to control where our dogs put their noses and mouths and feet, we can't. So I think that's an, an essential point. The second is, is that this bacterium can also be shed in the urine of dogs. And what I mean by that is there might be a dog walking on the street that gets infected with this bacteria and doesn't necessarily come down with clinical signs. I think we're pretty familiar with that a little bit. It's not obviously the same because it's viral disease, but people with COVID, right? There's completely variable ways that people react to an infection. Some don't even know they have it, and some unfortunately get incredibly ill. Same with dogs with lepto. Some dogs walk around and act totally normal, but they can shed that bacteria, meaning it comes out in their urine where they're at the park. So you might be at the park with a dog who's shedding lepto next to you. And if your dog is unvaccinated, there's a high risk in activity that's just waiting for an infection to happen. So again, avoidance, nearly impossible. Vaccine is really the core prevention. But that shedding you talk about or spreading through urine can't happen if your dog is vaccinated. So you're not only protecting your dog, you're helping others in the community as well. And you're saying, hey, disease, you can't go any further. That's right. We're stopping the shedding. We're stopping the spreading. You mentioned two things, your own dog and dogs in the community. I'm going to add a third to that list since we're doing lists. And that's to the humans in your household, right? Because this is a zoonotic disease. It means it's transmissible from animals to people. So it's incredibly important as veterinarians. We're also public health officers. We're, we're in charge of making sure that your families don't get diseases from your pets. And so that's another huge key factor in recommending that vaccine for our patients. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up. So you mentioned the fact that you have children. It's rare that even children, and I don't know many adults, that go stepping in the puddles and then saying, I'm thirsty and taking a drink from a puddle. That is not how people get leptospirosis, but people can even from our dogs. That's right. And we see a lot of risks in families where there's young children. So let's say you have a puppy and we see uh, in the studies that have come out um, from epidemiology, which means like studying sort of the um, rate of spread in different cities and how things spread. We've seen in Chicago from a study that the 
earliest age that these uh, dogs were infected was eight weeks of age. So we know puppies for sure can get this disease. They're urinating all over the house. And then you've got these sweet little toddlers crawling around, putting their hands on everything, not washing their hands, obviously, between playing and putting a food in their mouth. And it's pretty easy to have transmission. That's not even counting families with immune-suppressed individuals that are going through chemotherapy or organ transplant or rejection therapy or all kinds of things that put you more at risk of transmission of disease, whereas a quote-unquote a healthy immune system patient or human would not have as much risk. So there's there's lots of strategies out there for us to talk about zoonotic prevention, but it all comes down to the first and, and core and key prevention strategy for everything which is talking about vaccination. Yep. I can't say it any better. You said it well. We covered a lot, as we always do. Dr. Natalie Marks, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. Sally Bonner is, oh boy, the author of, I had no idea, The Art of Raising Kitten. It's an art, Sally? It's an art. It's patience. It's timing. It's love. And it's fun. I mean, for the first time in a very long time. We've had older animals, it seems, forever. And that's fine. I love them, of course. But for the first time in, like, I don't know, over 20 years, we've had a young animal in the house. And it happens to be a kitten. She's not as much of a kitten anymore. She's about nine months old. Or he is about nine months old. His name is Groucho. And, you know, he is still just so much fun. It's a joy to watch him. Uh, of course, he's a funny cat. He's got to be with the name Groucho. But he's adorable. <laughs> well, thank you. But I would argue that a kitten isn't for everyone in the first place. That's true, because if you are older or have maybe mobility issues, um, an older cat might be preferred. Um, there are plenty of older cats looking for homes. They may have a health issue. They may have uh, a behavior issue. They require a little bit more patience and love sometimes. A kitten is, is malleable. A kitten, you know, you can just put in an environment and give the things they need, such as a scratcher, good nutrition, environmental enrichment, and they'll do well. An older cat, you know, has a personality that's been formed, but it needs love as much as a kitten. Of course. Now I want to talk about those things they need. And you left, of course, one out that would be the litter box. So I want to start there because the number one reason cats are given up to shelters have to do with cats thinking outside the box. Sometimes they're just exactly. let it, pushed outside altogether. So we don't want that to happen. We want the human-animal bond to be there. Cats that use the litter box appropriately, well, the bond is there and continues to be there. Can, can we set up kittens for success from day one? Absolutely. Um, the rule of the thumb is one box per cat plus one. They should be an open box. That way you can maintain the cleanliness easier. Um, it's more accessible. The odors aren't trapped. Um, you can check for any health issues that may be arising. If a cat is camping out in the litter box, it might signal a urinary problem or, you know, likewise, you know, diarrhea. If you see the pudding, pudding poops, <laughs> okay. it'll be graphic, but yes. it allows you to maintain a better, a better, um, handle on the health and do not place the litter box in the deep dark basement why 
Do you want to go down into a deep, dark basement to do your thing? So Right. So it's kind of scary for little kittens to do that. And for senior cats, by the way, that's not what your book is about. It's about kittens. But for older cats, they have arthritis way more than we ever thought. So navigating those stairs can be an issue. But in addition to that, their eyesight isn't quite as good as it once was. So Mm -hmm. they are tempted not to go down those stairs. And like older people, they just sometimes figure, what the heck, I'm going to do what I want. I'm 90 years old. I'm just going to do it. (laughs) And it's the same kind of thing we think. All right, back to kittens. How about a kitten that you walk in the house, the kitten greets you, then runs to the couch and goes scratch, 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 and continues scratching on your grandpa's favorite chair or the sofa or somewhere where you don't want the cat to scratch. Well, you introduced the kitten to the scratcher at a, the earliest age possible. I swear by the inexpensive little cardboard scratchers that you can get at the pet store. They're inexpensive. You can put them all around the house. You keep a scratcher near that precious sofa so the kitten will go to the scratcher rather than the sofa and keep it laced with catnip. Um, the kitten scratches on the sofa. You bring the kitten to the to the scratcher and show her the scratcher, and chances are she will prefer that to the to the to the damask sofa. Um, a tall scratcher is good with sisal or carpet near a, a room with a view. Um, we have a couple of places in our house where you know there's a great view of the outside, and Sophia will you know scratch on the scratcher and hop up on the on the platform and look out the window. Uh, you can combine the exercise involved in scratching with a room with a view, and you've got a perfect environment for a kitten. But sometimes people answer this question by saying, I want to declaw my kitten. How do you feel about that? You don't. It's like cutting off your finger at the knuckle, um, at the first joint of your finger. Uh, there's very little reason to declaw a cat these days. There's too much known about the problems associated with a, with the um, with declawing. Another thing that happens is like the the cat may end up biting in defense um, rather than you know using its claws. Yeah, it's interesting. The Centers for Disease Control of all places they don't get into typically animal welfare issues, but they say they are opposed to declaw. And uh, the reason for that is just what you said. Uh, then the cat is more likely to bite. And mm-hmm. then we are talking about potentially issues that impact humans that the CDC does care about. So mm-hmm. they, actually, they actually weigh in on this topic. But more and more veterinary organizations or organized veterinary medicine are saying don't do it. The schools that teach veterinarians don't teach declaw anymore. And the students, That's really good. yeah, and the students wouldn't even do it anyway. And the same on the technician side. All right. So we don't want to declaw. We want to encourage the cat to scratch where we want the cat to scratch. But what if you already have a cat in the house? Most people do not have a single cat. They have, I think the average is 2.3 or 2.4 cats. I'm not sure what that 0.4 is all about or 0.3 <laughs> is. But but they do. So how do you introduce? I mean, does it work to say, hey, guys, let's have a meeting. I want you to see this new cat. That I'm, The kitten is very cute. You will love the kitten. Okay, go play. Does it work like that? <laughs> well, I have found that, that kittens are usually easy to introduce. You know, they're, they're cute and they're not really threatening. And I, for the most part, I've introduced kittens 
right away into the household. A couple of times when I've gotten older kitties, I keep them separated and introduce them gradually through sharing, you know, swapping space and swapping um, scents in terms of blankets and beds and things like that. And that usually works out, too. I think with kittens, you can just pretty much put them in the mix once they've got a health check. And older cats, you know, you introduce gradually. And, again, it depends on their personality. Some cats, you know, fit right in. Other cats will have a reserve for as long as they're together. You know, two of my cats, Yuri and Pulitzer, never really got along. They tolerated each other, but, you know, they never really got along. But I have... You know, we had plenty of space in the house, so they kept their distance, and they were all right. Again, it boils down to the personality. All right. Well, I every hope, cat is different, of course, and I hope Pulitzer gets a prize, and I hope you get one of those. What do they call them, Pulitzers, for this book, "The Art <laughs> of Raising Kitten"? Sally Bonner. I can't say the title without smiling because you say the word kitten, I believe you have to smile. The Art Absolutely. of Raising Kitten. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you, Steve. We just passed by International Human-Animal Bond Day. I was talking to Lisa Dent about this on WGN, and what I said is that you, all of you, and I mean all of you, have this thing called the human-animal bond. Whether you know it or not, you like it or not, like animals, don't like animals, none of that happens to matter. You have no dogs or cats at home, that doesn't matter. We are hardwired to have this interesting bond that we have with nature. And one example of that is we're fascinated by animals and we go to the zoo. Probably you have been to a zoo, maybe not within the past year, but probably, I don't know, past five years. It is the most popular entertainment venue, zoos and aquariums, on the planet. So I looked it up and I here's what I found. 700 million people go to an accredited zoo or aquarium around the world every year. So I thought, okay, the most popular sports event, that must somehow exceed the number of people going to zoos and aquariums. So the most popular sport happens to be football, or as we say in uncultured America, soccer. So I thought, how many people go to a professional soccer game or football? 240 million people. Zoos wallop that number by more than twice as many. So what draws people to zoos? What is the value of going to a zoo? When little kids say, I want to go to the zoo, and they want to see all these animals, why are they saying that? Why are they interested in seeing chimpanzees or or seeing, I don't know, any animal at the zoo, seeing impala? It doesn't matter. Why are they so interested in the polar bear? And why are we so interested as adults? Many people go to the zoo without kids, right? What is it about the zoo that fascinates us? And it's not only animals at the zoo. It's, of course, companion animals. During the pandemic, people adopted around the world in record numbers. Now, I think there was an altruism there that people wanted to help the shelters who did say, help, because they had no idea that employees would be able to come in the next day to feed the animals, or the day after, or the day after. So they said, we need your help. Chicago numbers, uh, the the shelters were cleared. I mean, literally cleared out. But I think there was another reason for that, too. I think we needed the comfort without, I mean, the pandemic, we didn't know what was about to happen. But we do know that dogs and cats bring us comfort. And even if we don't think it, 
We know it. We know that's the case. And I wonder if that had something to do with it as well. The human-animal bond, I think, is one of the most powerful forces on the planet. We'll talk to you next week, bright and early, right here on WGN.